Let me open my message, uh, which is the fifth uh, in my series, uh, The Cross, uh, with a little bit of a, an insight into how things happen on a Saturday morning in our family. Uh, so what happens on a Saturday morning is that we have our shopping delivered to us uh, via the Morrison's delivery van. And uh, the first thing that we know that that's uh, going to be arriving is normally between 9 and 10 on a Saturday morning. And the first sign that we know that it's coming is that there's a text arrives on Chloe's phone uh, that says, you're our next stop. And so we know that in a few minutes there's going to be uh, action. Uh, and then uh, not long after that, there'll be another text that says, we are unpacking outside your door. Uh, and that's usually accompanied by the sound of boxes being moved around. And uh, so that's my cue to head downstairs, open the back door, go down the side gate, open up the side gate, and greet the delivery driver, and to say to them, listen, would you mind bringing the delivery down the back to our back kitchen door? Um, because that, you know, that's where our kitchen is. And they come down with their, kind of their red crates with all their stuff, and they put it by the back door, and they hand us over the shopping. And that's a routine that happens for us week in, week out, just as I'm sure your shopping happens as a routine for you. But what happens at that point is that the delivery driver will sometimes say to me, are you happy with the substitutions? And uh, what that usually means is that something at the depot that we have ordered online maybe isn't in stock. And so, for instance, you know, like that kind of the basic Morrison's marmalade, thin-cut marmalade that costs maybe 89p, they've decided at the depot, because they don't have that, that they're going to give us a substitute. And so they give us that kind of, you know, the Chivers, old English, thick-cut marmalade, you know, that really luxury one that's really, really nice. But the only difficulty is it's like £2.50 a jar. And so there's that little temptation that goes on at the door where I go, yeah, yeah, we'll have that. And Chloe says, no, reject that. Well, that's too expensive. And we have to decide with the substitutions which are the things we're going to keep and which are the things we're going to reject to keep ourselves on budget and, in, on, and, and on track. Uh, and so I'm sure you've all had similar kinds of experiences. Um, uh, we also have a, a kind of a culture, I think, where a substitute gets offered uh, when we do shopping, but it's not necessarily the thing that we first opted for. It's not necessarily the, the top-rated thing. It's not necessarily, okay, our first choice that we really, really wanted. And what the, what the retailer is trying to do is trying to kind of offset the disappointment we might have had because the first thing isn't what we wanted, and they're giving us their best alternative. Um, I, I remember one time ordering up a, a set of Salter scales from Amazon. And uh, these scales are right. I, you know, I went looked at the reviews on Amazon. There were sort of several thousand reviews saying how good they were. And uh, when they arrived... They didn't have the Salter logo on, and so I kind of thought, no, I've just been sent a kind of a, a cheap alternative. And so I contacted the supplier. I, I looked on the reviews, and, and I found quite a few of the reviews were saying the same thing. About a quarter of the reviews were saying, oh, I got sent an unbranded set of scales, and I, I had to send them back. So I, did the, I contacted the vendor and said, listen, you seem to have slipped a non-branded set of scales through here. That's not what I wanted. Please, could you send me the real thing? And then we got into this silly conversation of, well, would you, take a, you know, would you take them for a little bit less money? It's like, no, no, not really. I just want the original scales. I'd like some Salter scales. And then we, would you take them for free? No, no, I wouldn't. I, no, please, can I just have the Salter scales? So in the end, I got the Salter scales. And, uh, you know, it, they tried to say that it was going to cost them more to ship it back to China and, you know, all the rest of it. But the bottom line was that they tried to substitute on me, except it was kind of round the other way. They gave me the shoddier one first when actually I wanted the real one. Uh, and and that, that, that was kind of annoying. So we have a culture of that the substitution isn't necessarily the better thing. 
it's the thing that we've kind of we've been given as an alternative to what we would really like. Uh, back in school, um, I was always on the subs bench for football. You know, I do find this platform an immensely helpful tool to kind of get rid of my sorrow over some of my past history. Um, but I, I, was always on the, I was always on the subs bench. I, I never made it into the kind of the, the starting lineup. Uh, so there'd be 11 much fitter, stronger gents than me. And then they'd get to the end of the game and they'd have scored their goals and had their fun. And then it's like, yeah, we'll give Nick 10 minutes at the end, you know, to run around. And I was definitely, uh, you know, not the, the favoured choice for football. I know it's shocking to look at now, you know, I'm so... Yeah, no, OK, we won't go there. Uh, so, um, however, what I would say to you is that sometimes the substitution is the person who wins the day. Sometimes the person who comes on that we didn't want to start at the beginning because maybe we didn't rate them that highly is the person who actually is the thing that clinches the victory for us. Uh, I would just like to remind you that on the 31st of July this year, uh, the Lionesses, uh, who are the England um, uh, football team, uh, took on Germany uh, at Wembley and uh, a, a substitute named Chloe Kelly came on and she scored the winning goal. Sometimes the substitute is the person who clinches the victory for us. And there's nothing second rate about them as a substitute whatsoever. And this is where I want to go a little bit with my message today. We're in part five of our series called The Cross. And let me just quickly recap to you where we've come so far on our journey with the series. We opened on the first Sunday in September with the primacy of the cross, how central it is. And I gave you this idea of it's really important for us to strive to the center of the roundabout, even though the roundabout's trying to fling us off, you know, that playground roundabout that we maybe ran onto as kids and then we tried to get to the middle. The energy we need spiritually to get back to the center of the cross in our faith is really important. We've got to get the cross central to our faith as Christians, and that's really, really important. That's the premise of the series. And then we tried, the following week, we tried to understand the scandal of the cross. Just what an incredible, awful, and terrible thing the cross was for people. It was invented to degrade and humiliate, and it did that. And Jesus went there, and it gave him this moral authority in all of the situations we find ourselves in, where people are degraded or humiliated or put into terrible situations. And also we, dis we discovered that, humanly speaking, it makes no sense to build a faith around a process that is designed to be degrading. Why would anybody humanly do that? And that, that leads us to the idea that maybe it's a hallmark of God to do that and not people. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the concept of iniquity or sin, um, and uh, we kind of uncovered the seemingly endless capacity that people have to do the wrong thing uh, and to go their own way and to, and to commit sin and wrongdoing. And then last Sunday, we tried to uh, address the large subject of how the cross is God's means or plan for justice and for righteousness and restoration. And we tried to look at some of these things. And my sense during this series is I feel like I'm scratching the surface of really a massive, massive deal at just how central the cross is. But each week I'm aiming to bring something that's core to why the cross is important. And this week we're going to continue with this idea of the substitution. The substitution of Jesus. That Jesus, as a substitute for us, goes to the cross in our place and that somehow that makes us one with God. And it's a doctrine called, or a teaching called, substitutionary atonement. 
substitutionary atonement. What substitutionary means is just the adjective that goes with the word substitution. And so if you, dis if you put substitutionary with something, you're saying that it's got the quality of having a substitute. But atonement's a, kind of an interesting word. Uh, atonement um, literally means at one-ment. It's the process of making at one. And so when something is all scattered or broken or severed or cut off or in different places, if you were to make them all at one, you would bring it back together. I had a look in the dictionary at what atonement means. Um, and atonement means that you do something to, set, to show that you are sorry for something bad that you did that then broke a relationship. And so when we, when we make atonement, we, we probably don't use this language in our friendships, but if we mess up in one of our friendships and then we go and repair that friendship so that it's reconnected again, that's atonement, actually. That's making us at one again. You know, if I fall out with Debbie for some reason and then I, you know, because of something I've said and, uh, you know, I upset her and then I kind of think, oh, man, I really have messed this friendship up and we're not talking anymore. And then I get with Debbie and say, listen, I am so, so sorry that I said that. Would you forgive me? And then she kind of says, well, yeah, okay, but you did hurt me. And then, and then we build it back again slowly to a point where it heals itself. That process is actually atonement because we're putting our connection back at one where before it was broken. Uh, back in the 15th and 16th centuries, the word one was a verb as well. So we would say one as to describe an object or a single thing or something being in unity. But back in those days, you could say, uh, let's, let's one all of you. And that would be, let's get all of you together in one place. Or let's, let's one the team. And, and, and so it would be a verb. It would be a way of describing how everything could be got together. And so atonement is the act of bringing back together as one where something has been broken and what, when we say substitutionary atonement, we're saying that the, the work of Jesus on the cross puts us back together at one with God in some kind of a strange way. And, and it does do that. Uh, and this is why Christians follow Jesus, because Jesus is able to provide a means by which we are brought back together with God. Now, there is something very distinctive about substitutionary atonement as it relates to Jesus. And it's this. He is very much not the second best alternative. You know, I opened my message by talking about second bests and being on the subs bench and uh, things being sent to us from suppliers that perhaps weren't what we wanted as, as a substitute. It's round the other way in the Bible. What we start off in the, with in the Bible is a picture of uh, sacri blood sacrifice and the confession of sins on a goat, uh, and that goat goes away into the wilderness with the sins on it, and that's the thing that makes us right with God. But that has to be repeated and it's not fully adequate because it involves the blood of animals. And what we find in the New Testament is the blood of Jesus is fully adequate and it deals with all of our sins and it sorts us all out fully and properly. And so it's the best thing. The substitute of Jesus is the best thing. It's not the pale alternative or the, or the bad second best. Uh, what you see in the Bible is a journey of uh, basically what, would, what we might call an unfolding revelation. That you start off with something which is a, 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 like a physical picture of a certain uh, spiritual setup. And the Bible builds and builds and builds that. And then you get to Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment spiritually of what you started off with in the physical. Uh, do you remember that story uh, of the wedding at, at uh, Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2? Uh, do you remember that? And they, uh, you know, Jesus is at a wedding, and uh, there's this, the wine is flowing, and it's decent wine. 
and then the wine runs out, you know, and Jesus hasn't started his ministry, but the master of ceremonies goes to Mary and says, well, Mary, we've run out of wine, and then Mary goes to Jesus because she knows what he's able to do, and she says, well, Jesus, do your stuff, and he says, well, I haven't started my ministry, can you leave me alone, please, woman? It's effectively kind of what he says, um, but, but he kind of agrees to do this miracle, and, and what he does is he transforms this water into wine, and the wine is better than the original wine. The substitute wine that Jesus brings through his miracle is much, much better than the original wine brought for the purpose of the wedding. And what John is trying to say with that story is that the better, the best thing is coming to the, to, at the end. The, the thing that we might think of, okay, you started with this and you ended with this, you, we, and we might think this is the, the, the kind of the second alternative and not so good. The Bible says, no, 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 the best comes at the end. The best is yet to come. The best is, is in the person of Jesus when he comes towards the end of the Bible and the, in the end of the biblical revelation. Do you follow that? Are you with me so far? Um, would you jump into your version Bible apps or open your physical Bibles uh, with me to uh, Leviticus chapter 16? We're going to see that physical Old Testament picture and develop it into what Jesus comes to do in the New Testament. Um, if you uh, are on a, a device or a tablet, you can open up the Version Bible app. And uh, in the Version Bible app, if you go to events, and then in events, you will find that Birmingham City Church is live. And then the content and the notes are available, like the headings and the scripture references are there. Please feel free to add your own notes and comments in as you go along. And if you save that, you've, over time you build up a repository of your own interactions with our messages. And that could be very helpful for you uh, in your devotional journey. Um, just, we just want to offer that out to you. So turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. And we're going to go through the Old Testament like precedent or starting point for where we're going to go with the idea of substitutionary atonement today. Leviticus 16 from verse 1 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons. Aaron is the high priest. It's like he, he's like his right-hand man. Uh, and the death is when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die, because I will appear, because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. What seems to have happened in this story is that Aaron's two sons, Aaron's the high priest of Israel, he's kind of like working alongside Moses, um, and they were called Nadab and Abihu, and it seems as though, kind of reading between the lines, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 10, it seems as though they'd had a few drinks and had decided to wander into the tent of meeting, and then they decided to try and get into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place behind the curtain, and do a little bit of offering of incense to God and saying some prayers, but under the influence of alcohol. And, and they got burned up by God. Now, that's kind of like quite a, a big thing to say in this day and age. What? Burned up by God? Like, does God do that? Well, God's holiness and power is a massive, massive thing. And I think sometimes in this day and age, we don't quite fully get that. We're kind of used to just like, hey, we can go to Jesus, and, and Jesus is our great high priest, and he lets us off all this stuff, and that's the passport into contact with God. And it absolutely is, but God is a very holy, all-consuming fire of goodness. And if we draw too close to him, we're going to get burned up by that, unless there's a proper arrangement for that. That's what the Old Testament teaches. 
Um, let me give you a, 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 some, th something of a story to try and illustrate this. When I, back when I was 10, I decided that I would visit an electricity pylon that I knew about, about three miles from my house out in some fields, uh, with the, the unauthorized logic of 10-year-old boys, you know, how just boys just go and do their own thing. And uh, it was a drizzly day in November, and I, marked, I set out across these fields, and I got to this electricity pylon. There was a whole, obviously, long series of them running through the landscape. It was out in the middle of some fields. I was just on my own. And I got there, and uh, my, plan to my plan was to climb the electricity pylon to get to the top. That, that was my plan, okay? Now, I know you're sitting there thinking what a daft plan that is, but just go with me for the story, okay? But when I get to the bottom of the electricity pylon, I find that very sensible people have put like a, a lattice of uh, kind of barbed wire around each foot of the, of the pylon, about sort of, I guess, where this, you know, where this projector is probably, and so that if anybody was going to try and climb up, that they would then come up against uh, effectively a barbed wire fence hanging in the air that stops you from climbing up, which is a very sensible thing that the engineers have decided that, you know, 10-year-old boys are likely to try and climb this and see this as a challenge, so we need to stop that because it's dangerous. So I'm standing there and I'm looking up in the air and this thing is enormous. I mean, it stretches right up into the air a really long way. And because it's a damp day, I don't know if you've ever stood near an electricity pylon, but because it's a damp day, I could, I could, I could hear and almost feel the power of the electricity buzzing through the lines. It kind of hums. I don't know if you've ever stood near an electricity line and, and, and listened to it, especially if you're out in the country and it's quiet, but the thing buzzes with this power. It's got like an energy, well, obviously it has got a huge amount of energy running through it. So I looked at this thing for a while, and then I gave up on my plan to climb it because I couldn't, and I kind of trudged home and, and was pretty damp and miserable and wet. And I got home, and I, I don't know whether this was wise or not, but I told my dad about my failed plans. <laughs> my, my dad said to me, you are crazy. You don't ever want to climb one of those. And he told me about, you know, if you look up in the air, you see these great big China insulators. They're like kind of fat blocks, and they, they, they're circular, and they sit up high, and they kind of give the insulation so that the metal structure of the pylon doesn't conduct the electricity into the ground. And he said, if you'd managed to climb up that, and you'd reached out and touched on the other side of that, you would have been fried to death instantly. The power going through those cables is enormous. And the reason I share that story with you is I want to give you a sense of the power and the, the, the purity and the strength of God's holiness is so strong that without the proper arrangements to get into his presence, we will be burned up. We, we can't face God's goodness without an arrangement or a, a procedure that God has authorized. This was unauthorized fire. These guys were inebriated. They kind of were way too casual with God, and they paid for it. God's holiness burned them up. Uh, there's a, a particular passage in, I think it's in Exodus there, uh, where I think um, uh, Moses asks if he can see God's goodness. Um, and it sa he says this, uh, God re re replies to, to Moses, and he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face well, no one may see me and live. <coughs> God's goodness and his glory is so powerful and strong that we may not draw close and live. Therefore, there has to be some kind of an arrangement that's authorized by God because God is also, at the same time as being holy, highly relational. 
And so what is the way in which we can draw close? And this chapter of Leviticus 16 describes the way in which that closeness can be brokered. There is a way that the priest may have access to God without being burned up. Let's continue Leviticus 16 from verse 3 there. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way. In other words, God's giving some instructions. It's with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. He is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So there are a number of animals that need to be sacrificed and blood needs to be shed in order that people may access God. That's the Old Testament pattern. And if you count that up there in just those, in those verses there, I think that's a total of five animals. We've got a young bull, a ram, two male goats, another ram, and so on. That's quite a lot of animal sacrifice. And then it continues on. Um, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering, therefore making him acceptable to be in that place at all with God. Um, but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And I, we've got a, a guest with us today, uh, and you're going to see how this works. Uh, we're going to bring that guest on in just a moment. So by making use of both the blood of the bull and one of the goats, Aaron as the priest makes atonement for himself. In other words, to get close to that fire and purity and holiness and energy of God that's so good, a sacrifice has to be made. It can't just be a casual entrance. And then the person, when they've made that sacrifice, they are, as the priest, are in the right space to be able to make atonement for all the people of Israel. Now, where it uses the word scapegoat in translations like the CSB and the NIV, other translations use a word azazel. You might have that in your translation. And Azazel could either be the name of some kind of a goat demon, or it might mean the goat that goes away, because that's what that sounds like in the Hebrew. Let's just jump down to verse 20, and I'm just going to ask, uh, we, have a, we have a visitor with us today. Uh, this, is, um, this is Stella, and uh, this is Nancy. Hey, Stella. Hi. Thanks for coming on, and thanks for bringing Nancy with you. This is great. Hi, Nancy. Great to see you. Let's hope Nancy behaves. Uh, you know what I mean, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've got some sins here. Uh, I think I've got them just here. Where have they gone? Oh, I've lost my sins. Amen. Amen. Yeah. God's, God's <laughs> taken them off me already. Seriously, where are they a minute? What have I done with them? Are they there? Oh, here we go. Thank you, Chloe. I'm good. Sorry. Those were the sins of the old service, and they were dealt with. Okay, so. <clears throat> what would happen is, the priest would specify some sins, and he would put his hands on the goat's head. And what we're going to do is we're going to stick some sins to Nancy the goat. Thank you, Nancy. Very kind. Oh, okay. Maybe Nancy will spot these and try and nibble them off. 
Um, but this is the kind of thing that the priest would do. He would actually put the sins on the goat like this, and he would speak them over the, uh, over the animal and, uh, and place his hands on the goat's head. And then what would happen is, as they got through the sins, and this would take a while, because if you think about it, this happens once a year, and it happens for the sins not just of all the people, but it ha happens for the sins of the nation. Let's put that one there as well. Thank you, Nancy. Done a great job for us. He would place his hands on the goat's head and speak all the sins of the nation over the goat, and that would take a while. And then the person appointed to lead the goat would take the goat away, and the goat would go outside the camp, and it would be dealt with in a far-off place. The goat would be released into the wilderness effectively. Thank you very much, Stella, and thank you, Nancy. Yeah, we're good. Would you give them a round of applause? And just like that, greed and lust and envy and murder and all those things that were things that made people guilty before God. How are we doing? <laughs> all those things would literally walk out of the camp and they'd go to a far off place and be released into the wilderness. And guess what? At the end of that process, the nation of Israel, all the individuals and the nation collectively would be at one with God because of the confession of the sins upon the scapegoat. That's a phrase we have still today in our culture. We still use the word scapegoat to describe someone upon whom we place all the blame, don't we? We make a scapegoat out of somebody in order to put the blame on them so that we don't have to take the blame ourselves. But actually, that's a spiritual principle that it comes straight from Leviticus chapter 16. That's, what it, that's where it comes from. Let me just tell you how that picks up. Let's just pick up from Leviticus 16, verse 20. When he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess, it, confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He's to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land, and the man will release it there. That means that the, that the nation of Israel, on that particular day, they are now completely clean. They are now completely at one with God. Let's just jump down to verse 29. Uh, this is to be a permanent statue, says the Lord. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, the day of atonement for the Jews, for modern-day Jews, is known as Yom Kippur. You might have heard of that, 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 that name of that uh, festival. And it's the tenth day of the seventh month. And uh, the, actually, their seventh month is... Um, called Tishrei, uh, Tishri, um, and it goes from the 25th of September through to around about the 24th of October. And, it, and so it happens that the 10th day is this coming Wednesday, bizarrely. Uh, so this coming Tuesday night and into, next, uh, into Wednesday in, in three days' time, effectively, is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement um, for the Jewish nation. Now, the Jews don't perform animal sacrifices or make a declaration upon a goat's head anymore because they no longer have the temple in which to do it. Uh, that temple was destroyed in AD 70, and for various and long historical reasons, that's not been put back. And so, actually, the Jews have no lawful means of getting right with God. 
not according to their own scripture they don't and that they work around that and and that's the subject of a of another sermon potentially uh, another day but they get around that with various other justifications from other books of the bible and so on but the reality is there's no blood sacrifice there's no scapegoat and confession of sins and sending out into the wilderness outside the community and therefore they are still in sin they are and imagine Imagine you sinned <laughs> the day after the Day of Atonement. Oh, that would be so bad, wouldn't it? I mean, you wouldn't want to. Obviously, you'd never set out to do that. But then you have to wait a whole year before the whole process all works again. Now, you can go and confess to the priest. There are sacrifices that can deal with your personal sin. But then you're out of step with the rest of the nation. And, and out of step with the rest of the community but actually what happens is over the over the year everybody slowly falls out of that because everybody finds it hard not to sin and so every year it gets repeated so each year there is a day of atonement and each year on that one day people are made completely holy and completely clean that's the old testament pattern jump with me to hebrews chapter 9. we're going to look at how this gets fulfilled in the substitutionary atonement that Jesus brings for us on the cross that is the substitution that is the best thing it's not the pale alternative it's the best thing it's Jesus as our heavenly substitute uh, who comes and he takes upon himself all of our wrongdoing uh, so Leviticus 16 is like the uh, the legal and ritualistic and religious way in which atonement is made for the Jews in the Old Testament but when Jesus comes and uh, goes to the cross, he takes our sins upon himself and he makes us right with God and that's true for all time. And the only thing we have to do is to receive Jesus by faith and say, yeah, I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. And that makes us right with God. And I'll explain, I'll give you a visual illustration of that in a minute. Let's just jump into Hebrews uh, chapter 9 from verse 9. The writer to the Hebrews says this, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, and what the writer there is saying, he's talking about a heavenly temple of which Jesus is the high priest versus the physical tabernacle of the Old Testament. He, that's Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. Do you remember the only way you can get permission to be in front of God is through sacrifice? You can't just wander in there drunk and pretend that everything's okay. God's going to burn you up. And so the way that you do that is through a blood sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, they did that with animals. But what the Hebrew writer is saying is that this is done in the New Testament by the blood of Jesus. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? So in being led outside the city up towards Golgotha, the hill where Jesus was sacrificed, Jesus is our scapegoat. He is the person who takes all the wrongdoings we could ever have thought of and that we've ever done or ever said. He takes them on himself on the cross outside the camp. 
outside the city. He becomes the New Testament version of the Old Testament scapegoat. And instead of you and I being punished for the things that we got wrong and the sins and the the things that would make us burn up before God, Jesus takes that punishment instead. That's the substitution. Instead of you and I going to the cross, Jesus goes to the cross. I just want you to imagine that perhaps all of our sin is represented by this Bible. Uh, and, you know, and, and you can imagine like a kind of a cross shape. And this is us on this side. And because we have this uh, between us and God, if God's up here and we're down here, there's, 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 we're cut off, aren't we? We can't have that relationship with God. We're, we're literally cut off. We are not at one with God. And spiritually, we all have in our hearts a desire to be at one with God again. And, and one of the things that I found really difficult in my 20s was I just didn't realize that that's what I needed. And I went and looked for it in all the wrong places. <laughs> Can I just be really honest? And I didn't get that right. And then when I met Jesus, I realized, ah, what I'm really looking for is a relationship with God to be, have all the blockages removed. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes all of those blockages on himself. And guess what? We have direct access to the Father now. We're able to connect with the Lord. We are not cut off anymore. And this also then explains why we have that very strange thing that goes on during the time. I'll just put my Bible, the Bible down a minute. That very strange thing that goes on from about noon on the day of the crucifixion. Darkness descends over the whole of the land. And uh, what scholars think is that spiritually what's going on is that every single wrong thought and word and action from before Jesus and every single one from after, including into the future, is funneled spiritually somehow uh, and it kind of comes to be over the cross and it descends on Jesus for that three hours. That's kind of one of the theories anyway. And that's what the blackness might represent, that everything went dark for such a long time. And Jesus is on the cross taking that from us. And then we get this incredible thing that Jesus says, which is very inexplicable unless you understand that this is what's going on. In Matthew 27, 46, it says this. At about three in the afternoon, in other words, about after three hours of this darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the reason that he's abandoned, he feels abandoned now, is because he is abandoned. He is now cut off. The thing that has made us at one with God is now the thing that cuts Jesus off. And Jesus, for the first time in his mortal body, understands fully what it's like to be disconnected from God as a human being. Because up to that point, he's had no disconnection at all. He's been in perfect relationship with his heavenly Father. And then suddenly on the cross, he's like completely cut off. And that's why he cries out, why have you abandoned me? Because he can't spiritually see his father anymore because he is no longer at one. And it was done for a purpose. It was done for a purpose to achieve our oneness with God, our atonement. There's one really key difference as well about the atonement that Jesus achieves for us on the cross, and that is that it's available all the time. Now, I don't want that to be something that we cheapen. It cost him hugely. It cost him going to the cross. But the reality is we can get in front of Jesus at any point and say, Jesus, I am really genuinely sorry for this thing that I have done. And Jesus will forgive us because of what he did on the cross. 
We don't have to wait a year for the year of atonement. We don't have to get to Wednesday the 5th of October like the Jews do and have their holiest day and, and go through all of their processes and, and then hope that that works, which actually I'm ever so sorry to say it doesn't. Legally, it just doesn't before God. We can get legally before God and righteously before God and know that he has dealt with all of our sins properly. And we're going to mark that right now by taking communion together as a, as a kind of a focal point of our, of our time. And uh, so, Jason, would you mind bringing up the communion elements, please? That would be great. Thank you so much. Um, just pop your hand up if you haven't got one of our communion packs from you, and our stewards will get round and just offer those to you. Uh, that would be great. Thank you so much, Jason. The communion packs look, thank you, these, they look like this. They're these little cups. Um, the guys in the green t-shirts are just coming around and offering those. Uh, the way that these work is if you take the, the little sort of uh, uh, silver section, of, uh, sorry, the, the clear section off the top, it then gives you access to the bread underneath. So if you peel that back and get the wafer out, we're going to just take communion together as a response to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. you'd like to just take the uh, communion wafer from the top there and we'll take that bread all together thank you Jesus for your body broken for us amen in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me If you, feel, if you peel back the, uh, the foil section, that will give you access to the juice. Let's take the juice all together as a representation of Jesus' blood. Paul finishes by saying, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a minute, we're gonna worship and our, our choir will come back on and we'll, we'll respond with some worship. But something I think that's really important, when you hear a message this significant, that there are gonna be people here today that perhaps you, you were in a relationship with Jesus a long time ago or you were connected with church a long time ago and so on and so on, but it's kind of fallen off and you've not kept it up. Or that perhaps you're here and for the first time you've realized, okay, I kinda of understand what Jesus has done for me on the cross and you want to respond to that. I know that in my life, at, around, at the age of 32, I'd got to a point of realizing that the spiritual fiber on the inside of me was not enough on its own, and I needed God. And the way to do that was by asking Jesus into my life. And so we're gonna pray a prayer uh, to respond to Jesus. Uh, and for those of you who are watching online, uh, you can see that this prayer reproduced uh, in our, our uh, YouTube notes. In fact, every single YouTube uh, that we put out uh, for a Sunday. We have the salvation prayer, as it's called, 
in the description there. And I'd encourage you to, to, to read that prayer along. But for the rest of us in the room, I'm going to say this prayer, and I want you to just say it along with me in your hearts. You don't need to say it out loud. Um, and we'll pray it together. And for those of us who are already Christians, we kind of know this, don't we? We, we? we do this for people. Pray with me a moment. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for my wrongdoing. Please forgive me for being separated from you and from other people. I receive you into my life as Lord. Please lead me from now on. I surrender to you. I believe that you died on the cross to take away my sins, that you rose again on the third day, and that you are alive and with me now, and I accept you into my life. Please help me to live for you. Thank you for your gift of eternal life for now and forever. Amen. And just still with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, if you prayed that prayer, either for the first time or after a long time of being away from Jesus, just raise your hand just a little way, just in your chair. Just show me that you've done that. It's a brave thing to do, but if anyone's done that, thank you so much. There's a, there's a chap at the back who's done that. Really appreciate your courage in doing that. Got to say, it's the best ever decision you're ever, ever, ever going to make in your life. Should we just give a round of applause to that gent at the back there? He did that. Well done. Very courageous. Well done. Would you all stand with me? And if you kind of wanted to pray that in your mind and you were really wanting to raise your hand but you didn't, we'll give you another opportunity in a little bit. Because sometimes you just kind of have to ramp up to a big decision, don't you? I understand that. We're going to sing now and uh, we're going to respond in worship. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, choir.